The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock, and I am absolutely delighted to be joined in studio this week for the Thursday interview by Robert Harris, the prolific author whose latest book, Act of Oblivion, is out now. Robert, an absolute pleasure. Thanks a million for popping oh, in. Thanks for having me, Kieran. Um, listen, before we talk about the book, because the, the 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 backdrop to the book is this period of political turmoil uh, in England and, well, across these islands, actually, if we're, if we're being accurate. Um, some might suggest we're in a period of political turmoil at the moment. Uh, yes, we seem to have been in a politi- permanent state of revolution for about six <laughs> years, so it's all getting very exhausting. What have you made of the uh, elevation of Liz Truss? Um, I, I haven't made that much of it, really. I've sort of tried to keep my eyes averted and I've kept my head firmly in the 17th century, which is, seems to me in many ways a preferable period to live in. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. But it's becoming England is, or Britain, for, for having been famous for its political stability. Now, four prime ministers in six years. This is the sort of thing that the Brexiteers used to mock continental countries for. <laughs> it, there's this strange pattern as well developing where people don't get what they voted for or no. they only get it for a short period of time. No, you you elect Cameron and you end up with Theresa May. You elect Theresa May and you end up with Boris Johnson. You elect Boris Johnson and you end up with Liz Truss. It's like a sort of shifting game um, of hide the prime minister. Um, and very, very weird it is too. But, you know... Uh, we're going through a, a period of unprecedented turmoil, not just uh, in politics, but of course in world affairs. And we've had the pandemic, we've got the energy crisis. You know, these these are difficult times. What is the root of that turmoil? Um, I think that it's, there is a cyclical pattern in human affairs. And we've had really 60 or 70 years of pretty uh, peaceful um, life compared to past generations and you just sometimes feel that the peace gradually ebbs away and you start to live in revolutionary times and it feels that we've got lots of things all sort of going on now all at once um i mean obviously the pandemic has been a huge world event which we haven't yet i think entirely come Mm. to terms with the effect it's had on the world economies and and generally people have behaved started to behave very irrationally i mean russia's behavior I suspect in some respects is down to Putin's isolation during COVID. He seems to have been, be, started to behave rather strangely. And this is now having great knock-on effects, the energy and, um, and the economies that were already struggling because of the pandemic are now struggling even more because of the energy crisis. And is that how you would describe these times? Uh, revolutionary? Revolutionary or turbulent, um, I wouldn't like to predict how it will end, but often pandemics are followed by periods of great change and uh, it feels as though we're living in that era now. Mm. Positive change? Um, I think it will be bumpy. Um, But, you know, I'm not necessarily a pessimist because um, I think previous generations have surmounted worse challenges than we face at the moment. Because, you know, there'd, there'd be no shortage of people who talk about, say, the rise of populism and and that it speaks to democracy being under threat. You know, not just here in Europe or in Russia, but the States as well. And they're, they, they are often accused then in turn of hyperbole. And I just wonder, you know, given 
several of your novels are, are set against the backdrop of kind of democracy being under threat or that status quo being upended. Um, do, do, do you think they're guilty of hyperbole or do you think democracy is under threat? I do think it's under threat. Um, it's probably always under threat. It's quite a rare state in human existence, democracy. A lot of countries haven't had it very long. And uh, it's wide open always to abuse. It's a, it's, and it can be a pretty fragile system, especially nowadays when there's no longer any consensus about truth and where you have political candidates such as uh, Trump and Bolsonaro in Brazil who are deliberately casting doubt on the electoral process even before the election takes place so that their supporters can be energised. I mean, that never used to happen. Um, I mean, people used to, it was rather like a game of cricket, you know. Uh, the captain shook hand at the end of the game and walked off the pitch, according to, you know, if you were out, you were out. That, that, those rules are no longer apply. So do we take it for granted? I suppose, maybe, or is that is that the human condition that you always assume that the conditions that exist in and around you will exist in perpetuity? Exactly. I mean, I wrote a trilogy of novels about Cicero, which are really all about the collapse of what had appeared to be a very stable constitutional settlement, uh, but the Republic uh, collapsed. And, um, you know, uh, uh, things change. I mean, the Soviet Union disappeared. Nobody really expected it to come so quickly, but it disappeared. Uh, Britain pulled out of the European Union. Nobody, no, most serious commentators never expected that to happen, but it happened. Trump was elected president of the United States. Nobody, or very few people would have predicted that. And, uh, you know, now the whole existence of the United States as an entity is quite seriously under threat. I mean, one can game play uh, through to a situation in which it no longer exists in its present form. Um, but, you know, nothing does last forever. I mean, everything changes. And how, like, you know, we talk about the human condition, assuming that things exist in perpetuity. How aware are, are, are people that they live in a time of change? I mean, you go back to the Cicero trilogy. I mean, Cicero is acutely aware of the threat to the Roman Republic um, and r- right to be wary of it. It was replaced by, you know, an, a, a system led by an emperor that in itself fell. But during those two seismic changes, the shift from republic to empire and then empire to the, you know, the, the fall of the, the, the fall of Rome, as it's described, um, it, the ordinary peasant farmer in and around Rome might not notice a huge amount of difference. Or oh, if you talk I'm, to them, you know, you know wh- when, did, when did the Roman Empire collapse? They would say, well, has it collapsed? Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. No, for most people's lives will go on... Um, undisturbed by 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 a change in democracy they won't go on undisturbed though by an economic collapse mm. um, or a pandemic um, those are going to fit those will reach out and uh, touch everyone um, there definitely feels as though there's something in the air I mean I felt that now for some years and a lot of my novels have addressed this very uh, issue um, that what seems solid beneath our feet um, actually can soon give way. Well, let's talk then about your latest novel, um, uh, Act of Oblivion. Uh, it is, it's a chase story. Actually, I'll let you, you give the blurb. Tell people what it's about. <laughs> okay. Um, the Act of Oblivion was a piece of legislation that was introduced in the English Parliament in the, the summer of 1660 when Charles II returned from exile and became the new king. And it was a deal, essentially, between Parliament and the king 
that all um, taking up arms against the king, all any crime that had been committed in the civil war would all be forgotten. Um, but the one thing that was not added to this act of oblivion and forgetting was uh, anyone who'd had a hand in the uh, death of the king, of Charles I, and anyone who'd signed the death warrant or anyone who'd sat in as a judge um, at the king's trial was required to surrender to the king's mercy, as they called it. This, this amounted to some scores of men. Those that surrendered uh, quickly wished that they hadn't mm. because there wasn't <laughs> to be a lot of mercy. Uh, and a lot of others went on the run. Uh, you know, they ran to Holland and Switzerland and Germany. And the two that I follow in my novel, Colonel Wally and Colonel Goff, uh, they flee to New England. They they cross the Atlantic. And um, I became fascinated by this whole story. And I invented a man who coordinates the hunt for these scores of uh, fugitives uh, and he has a particular animus against Wally and Goff, and he goes after them. He's called Richard Naylor. And the novel is mostly true about their life on the run, With mm. but I've just um, personified the person who's coming after them. And uh, uh, one of the mechanics in the novel is that uh, Whaley is, or Wally, is, is writing this account this memoir for his his wife who i think has died actually yeah. uh, he doesn't know he's writing this yeah. account for her of his time fighting with cromwell and those final days and leading up to the trial and is that that's your way of telling the chase story but also offering some commentary and insight into this yes. incredible period i mean it? these two guys father-in-law and son-in-law um Wally or Whaley, nobody knows quite how to pronounce it. Well, I, I read it saying Whaley, and it's, yeah, only, no, it's only I, in the last I, couple of moments when you, know, you said let Wally. Tell, let me, let me <laughs> tell you, I, I, think that that you're, I think you're right, because his <laughs> coat of arms was three spouting whales, which does suggest, unless they went, went around calling them wolves, uh, <laughs> that he was actually Whaley. And that would have saved me a lot of misery, because I kept finding myself nearly writing, where's Wally, uh, in the book. Anyway, Wally is uh, Cromwell's uh, cousin, and they knew one another very well. He commanded a, a troop of cavalry in, in um, Cromwell's regiment. And uh, he also had custody of Charles I when he was captured by the army. So he was perfectly positioned to write a memoir. And a lot of these guys did write memoirs. This is the beginning of that age of, of, of book publishing and mm. memoirs. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of time on his hands because he and his son-in-law basically hid out in barns and in attics and cellars even sometimes out for months at a time in the open. Um, it's a story of survival, really. Mm. Uh, his son-in-law was quite a different character to him. It, Ned Wally was 60 and a, a pragmatist and a, and a moderate, really. His son-in-law, who was 40, was uh, much more of a firebrand and a millennialist, and he believed that Christ would be coming again to earth. And he had all that, uh, all those beliefs. So they were, they're an odd couple, um, and uh, they play off one another as they as they as they try to survive. Uh, the the character of Cromwell is is as was central to all of the events. Is a peripheral character in the sense that you know he's only referred to by Whaley through this memoir he's writing. He, he's a fascinating character in, him, in and of himself because he is kind of revered in large parts of the United Kingdom and England. He is reviled on this side of the Irish Sea. Yes, it's a curious fact that the Cromwell statue stands outside the Houses of Parliament in London 
which he did more to disrupt and shut down uh, <laughs> than any anyone else. If he, if he didn't like what they were saying, he dissolved Parliament, and at one time he turned it out at the point of a gun. But he was um, kind of a Republican in the sense the Taliban. Oh, he was certainly he certainly wanted to. He, his phrase was, "We shall cut off the king's head with the crown upon it," meaning that we'll not only kill him, we'll kill the institution. It quickly became apparent that. Um, the, the people wouldn't follow a parliamentary committee, that they, there was no kind of binding loyalty in the state. Um, and he took over as Lord Protector, which was effectively a military dictator, and would have accepted the crown. I mean, it, you know, there was talk of a Cromwell dynasty and he would be King Oliver. Um, but in the end, the army wouldn't give him that. The army was much more radical. Uh, and in the end, when you took this huge personality, whether you loved him or loathed him, no one could doubt that Cromwell was a giant figure. Once he was removed from the scene, the whole thing fell apart. Mm. I'm very glad that neither of my uh, men on the run, Wally or Goff, came on the 1649 expedition to Ireland, and indeed Wally opposed it. From the start, he's on the record as saying there should not be a punitive uh, attack on the Irish, but um, nobody took any notice of him. Um, but yeah, no, Cromwell was, I mean, the, the irony is he, he seems to have caught malaria in Ireland, which plagued him for the rest of his life and ultimately contributed to his death. So well, the, so, so something end, we're all immensely yeah. proud of here. <laughs> in the end, that mosquito got him. Um, the, the, the Republic as it existed, I mean, it, it strikes me and maybe I'm wrong because it's just a period of history that I wasn't necessarily aware of, but I, I get the sense it doesn't get the attention across the board maybe it it deserves. Or certainly, you know, I think just maybe through kind of osmosis, people would know an awful lot more about the Tudor years than they would know about yes. Charles I, Cromwell, Charles II. Yes, definitely. I, and and it's, it is, you're right, it is a curious thing. Of course, there's the romance of the Tudor period, the six wives and, and the yeah. entanglement of, of emotional love and politics. And then Elizabeth is a very striking uh, qu- queen of a figure for modern age, really, this dominant woman. Um, but it is peculiar that the, the English Revolution, which is what it was, the Republic, which not only changed uh, the islands, the British Isles, as it were, including Ireland, but really f- f- ran out across the world because Britain became, with a huge army, uh, a military power for the first time, with a military dictator and a big navy and an expansionist project in the Caribbean and across America. This is the start of the modern world, as well as all the scientific developments of stone. You know, you had Newton and so on in in uh, in London. So it is an incredibly dramatic and important pe- period in world history, and and full of drama. And why? It's been neglected. I'm not sure. I suspect, having um, grappled with it myself, mm. it is it is a very complicated story. And actually, I've been lucky that the chase structure that I have enables me to give the reader a satisfying, I hope, page-turning story, whilst at the same time I can go back and look at what happened before so I can select it. But to write a from beginning to end Civil War novel would be... That would be very hard and uh, I think is full of religious difficulties, mm. Presbyterians versus Puritans and so on, which a lot of people would find quite hard actually to take. Well, what I found really engaging as well was this um, vision of, of 
the US as we describe it now, New England uh, at the time. I mean, th- that was a Puritan society, wasn't it? Very much so. Certainly especially New the, Haven. Yeah, the, the small towns pushing out across New England all settled within the last 30 years or so, um, all named after places in England. Um, that was extraordinary. And actually only really pretty fanatical religious yeah. people could have could have withstood it really i mean it was a very very hard life uh, in this in this abundant but quite hostile wilderness and um, you know that really flavors the book i mean they have to trek across new england then they face lions and bears and uh, wolves and um, there are you're never quite sure whether the native Americans are going to be friendly or not. I mean, the book climaxes really with the war with with the indigenous Indian population. So it's um, yeah, it's tough, and you can see in that world where modern America comes from. The DNA of America is forged in that yeah, religious I, society. Yeah, I was going to ask if you can draw a not necessarily a straight line, but a continuous line from that, you know, Puritan settlement to the religious fervor that's still such a part of the kind of political tapestry there. Yes, definitely. I mean, the craziness that you (laughs) can't have a drink at 18, you can't drink until you're 21, but you can go and buy an incredibly powerful assault rifle. Um, That that sort of... uh, uh, or, or the Roe v. Wade being overturned and abortion being made much more difficult just as a, a time in the rest of the world, including Ireland, is generally making it more available. Or the fact there are still towns in New England that are dry, you can't get a drink. Uh, prohibition, that's typically uh, a Puritan. And uh, the religious rights infatuation with Israel because they believe that Israel will herald the coming of Christ and the rapture, and uh, the, you know, which is, again from the millennialist view of the extreme fringe of Puritans. No, you can see it. The importance of of religion in American politics and on the Supreme Court of that fundamentalist kind of Christian religion, that is put there in the 17th century. Well, if you want to understand a bit more about how it was put there, if you want to know a bit more about the Civil War years and the Republic, if you want just a good chase story, which is what this is, Active Oblivion is the name of it. It is out now. Robert Harris, an absolute pleasure. Thanks a million for joining us. Thanks, Kieran. Enjoyed it a lot. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.